You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Now, I have looked forward to two months, for two months to utter the words I'm about to share. We are starting a new sermon series. (laughs) The Greatest Stories. A study through Luke's parables. And I love Jesus' parables. For as long as I can remember, I've said Luke is my favorite gospel because I love parables so much. But if you know anything about parables, it's almost like a love-hate relationship where you love the story, but the interpretation of the story is sometimes difficult to discern. So we're going to try to study these over the course of the summer months and make sense of them and try to apply them to our lives. Our first installment is Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. If you're not familiar with the gospel of Luke, fastest way to get there is turn three quarters of the way into your Bible. You'll find the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark. You want Luke, Luke chapter 11. If you're using an electronic device, just look up Luke. That's the quickest way to get there. And what we're going to find is Luke is going to pose a question. How should we view God when we pray? In other words, what should our view be of God? What should we ultimately expect from God as we pray, as we talk to Him? Luke chapter 11 is going to answer that question. So let's begin by looking into Luke chapter 11. We'll see that Luke begins with the setting. He lays out the setting so that we know what has set up, not only the discussion in verses 2 through 4, but the parables to follow. Luke writes, it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. Now, we don't know where Jesus is at the moment. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified. That much we know. We also know that the disciples have seen Jesus pray before because Luke's gospel is a gospel about prayer, far more so than the other three gospels. They had an opportunity to ask him previously, but they don't. Finally, one of the disciples asks one of the greatest questions and makes one of the greatest requests that could be ever uttered, and that is, Lord, teach us how to pray. Jesus doesn't teach them to pray until the disciples express an interest in prayer. Now, we have to recognize The disciples never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to preach. Teach us how to lead. Teach us how to cast vision, how to shepherd, how to counsel. They never asked any of those questions or made any of those requests. They simply asked, Lord, teach us how to pray. We need to ask why. Because in everything that Jesus did, the disciples saw that his ministry and his life was empowered by his prayer life. And they wanted to know more. They wanted to have the ministry that Jesus had. And they used John the baptizer as an example. John the baptizer was a great preacher and a great leader in his own right. He was the forerunner 
for Jesus Christ. And they say John taught his disciples how to pray. So both John the baptizer and the Lord Jesus Christ had disciples. They teach their disciples how to pray. Who are your disciples? And who are you teaching how to pray? Principles, practices that you've learned in your own prayer life. Weaknesses, failures that you've committed in your own prayer life. Who are you sharing with? Furthermore, who is it either in this church or in this entire region or perhaps throughout our country or in another part of the world, are you asking for help in your prayer life? Is there a woman or a man to whom you're saying, teach me how to pray. Help me to understand prayer better. I want to grow in this area of my life. Is there a more important area? Jesus didn't think so. Luke didn't think so. We need to be disciples who are committed to prayer because everything out of our life and ministry flows through our prayer life. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2 has Jesus answering the question or the request that the disciple made. But before we get into verses 2 through 4, we need to understand that this is traditionally labeled the Lord's Prayer. But it's better to title this the Disciple's Prayer or the Model Prayer. What we're going to find is it's a template. It's a pattern of prayer. Now, Luke's version is a shorter version than Matthew's version. Luke's version is only 38 words in the original language. That's nothing. Most of us will speak a sentence that's longer than 38 words. And yet this is a prayer. It's intended for us to pray out loud. But it's also, remember, a template that's designed like a skeleton for us to put flesh on. And to ensure that the order and the structure of the prayer is being honored in how we pray. So now let's look at verse 2. When you pray, say... Now let's stop. Jesus assumes that all disciples will pray. He doesn't say, if you pray. If you're really into prayer, you like long, arduous prayer gatherings... Christians call this for intercessors, those that like to pray to God for the requests of others. If you're really into prayer, if it's an area of your gifting, then pray. No, Jesus expects every disciple to pray. And this text is incredibly important because our vision is building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. One of our values is passionate prayer. So if we are to build disciples and if we are to be built up ourselves, one of the ways that will happen is through prayer. Listen to what Jesus emphasizes first. He emphasizes God's person. Father, hallowed be your name. That's what Jesus wants us to say. That's what Jesus wants us to say first. Now, Father ought to shock us. Yes, there ought to be some shock and awe. Now, the reason that most of you aren't, <gasps> is because you grew up in the church. 
And you were taught when you were a little girl or a little boy to pray, Dear Heavenly Father. And if you listen to children and even adults pray out loud, they're usually like, Dear Heavenly Father. I mean, it it comes out of their mouths so fast, the words are all slurred together because it's commonplace. It's something that we just do naturally and inevitably. We don't even think through the significance of it. But I want you to wrestle with this. If you look at the Old Testament, and that's what the disciples were familiar with at this time, there's 21 uses of God being called Father. But it was not an individualized relationship with God the Father. It was typically used of the people Israel. Go into the New Testament. There's 255 uses of God as Father. And Jesus speaks about God as Father continually. And it shocked the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They couldn't understand how a man could call God his Father and how he could see himself as one with the Father. So we should be blown away by the fact that we have the privilege of calling God our Father. Now, what's difficult about this? The fact is, many of us come from homes where our father, our earthly father, was abusive, negligent, passive, and we say to ourselves, I can't imagine calling God Father when my earthly father was just a difficult man. I want to say, I hurt for you. My heart breaks for you. I had the privilege of having a dad who loved me unconditionally and was always available to me. But here's what's sad. I still have a faulty view at times about God as my father. I still struggle with, does God truly love me? Does he care for me? I know he does love you. I know he does care for you, but does he care for me? Does he love me? There are times in the weakness of my perfectionism and my driven nature that I think God is disappointed with me as his son. Wherever you fall in this notion of calling God your father, perhaps today you can take a step of faith and say, Regardless of my family of origin, regardless of my earthly father, I understand that my heavenly father is loving, nurturing, patient, always available, generous, trustworthy. He's all those things that maybe my earthly father wasn't. And you can take a step of faith and say, even though I don't feel it, even though sometimes I don't think it, I'm going to ask for the grace to call you father. Now, here's what's interesting. These 13 verses need to be taught together because we start in verse 2 with Father. We end in verse 13 with Father. We've got bookends emphasizing the theme of the fatherhood of God. That's why these verses really need to be taught together. So notice what Jesus says. He says, Father, hallowed be your name. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the term hallowed in common everyday speech. I heard about an adult who said to a friend of his, you know, for years, in fact, up until the time I was eight, I thought God's first name was Howard. 
Our Father who art in heaven, Howard be your name. And then he realized, oh, no, no, it, it's, it's hallowed. Hallowed simply means to be holy. It means to be set apart. And we don't have time to look into the Old Testament background of this term, but if you like to study the Bible, and if you want to be able to do some homework this week, go back in your Bible to Ezekiel 36 and study that passage. Israel was to make sure that God's name was holy before an onlooking world. They did not do a very good job. And so God said, continue to ensure that my name is holy among you. That's God's heart for you and I. That through our words, through our thoughts, through our actions, we would honor God's name, his reputation, his nature as holy, as separate, and that we would show him off to the world. That's his desire for us. So prayer begins with God's person. That's where we start all of our prayers, focused vertically upon the Lord himself. Now we move from God's person to God's program, and this is very short and concise. Notice, your kingdom come. Three words. Jesus is saying, your life and your ministry, it doesn't consist of you. It consists of God, his person, and his program. Now here, the kingdom of God is referring to Jesus' future rule and reign, where he sets up a kingdom in Jerusalem, and he takes the promises that were made to God's people in the Old Testament, and he fulfills those over a thousand-year period. Now, I am looking forward to this day when government is done God's way. I can't wait to be a part of that. But there is a preview of coming attractions related to the kingdom. And that's you and I living in the here and now. So with a view to the then and there, if we live our lives in the here and now with a view to Jesus' kingdom and his promises being fulfilled, our lives in the midst of difficulty and tragedy and injustice will be tolerable because we know that this life is so brief. It's fleeting. It's passing. But we're moving on to God's kingdom, which begins with a thousand years and then goes on for all of eternity. That will prepare us to live in this life. Notice in verse 3, we've got God's provision. So now that we have focused in on the Father, we move to the family. We start working through the needs that you and I have. So the simplest way of thinking this through is vertical, horizontal. We start with God, we end with ourselves and others in our lives. So God's provision. Notice, give us each day our daily bread. Now, I love the fact that Jesus enjoys bread. I'm a carbs guy. Remember, I love cold cereal. I love any type of bread. Sadly, my wife is gluten-free, celiac, full-on, 16-plus years. So I know that this is not a menu endorsement. This is just Jesus trying to make an important point. But just for grins, notice he doesn't talk about give us our daily kale. He doesn't talk about our daily asparagus or even broccoli. He talks about bread. 
Now, jokes aside, obviously, this is an umbrella term. We like umbrella terms in the Pacific Northwest. So, underneath the umbrella, think rain, even in the summer, we've got things like every aspect of bread, perhaps even shelter and clothing, daily needs. And I want you to notice something else. There's a twofold repetition on daily. You can see it in most of your English versions. Each day, daily. A twofold emphasis upon today. Notice, not tomorrow. Jesus only promises to meet our needs today. He wants us to trust Him today and then tomorrow and in the days, weeks, and months to come. Do we know what will happen to our economy in our country? No, but it's not looking good. And so just understand, you're not to be thinking about all the details and all the ins and outs of your future. Yes, you should plan. Yes, you should save and invest. But you should not be anxious about tomorrow. Trust God today and keep trusting Him in the midst of your tomorrows. Now look what Jesus does. He moves from provision to pardon. In verse 4, he says, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. This is intense. I want to suggest to you that there's a link between 3A and 4A. In 3A, you have give us. In 4A, you have forgive us. They even rhyme. When I'm hungry, you know what happens. My stomach starts growling. And that's true for you. I can hear some of, your, some of your tummies growling right now. And that means you're thinking about food. You're not thinking about my sermon per se. You're thinking about your next meal. Is it not possible that what Jesus is doing here is he's saying in the same way that you want a minimum of three meals a day. Some of us are like at five, six, seven, eight that you should have that same sense of grumbling and desire and yearning to experience God's daily forgiveness and the need to forgive others. See, we don't think about that very often because many of us don't feel the need for daily fellowship forgiveness. But if you're married, you understand this. You may have a marriage certificate. You may be wearing a wedding ring. But that doesn't mean that everything is harmonious at home. In order to ensure that you're in fellowship with your spouse, you need to say, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. I blew it. Will you please forgive me? Now, please understand, God the Father sent Jesus the Son to die on the cross <clears throat> to forgive us for all of our sin, past, present, and future. It's all been forgiven, forgotten forever. But there is a daily need for confession. There is a daily need for repentance so that we can be in a harmonious relationship with the Lord. And I would argue that one of the greatest problems facing Christians today is bitterness, resentment, and what we could call unforgiveness. Eventually, we'll have to do an entire sermon series on the concept of unforgiveness because it is something that all of us struggle with. And yet here, in the same way that Jesus assumes that we will pray, he assumes that we will forgive. Is there anyone you need to forgive today? 
an ex-wife, an ex-husband, a prodigal child, a former spiritual leader from another church, maybe even from this church, a neighbor, an in-law. Who do you need to forgive? Is there anything blocking the flow in your relationship with the Lord? Remind yourself of verse 4a, that ultimately you've been pardoned, you've been forgiven much. So if that's the case, let's forgive others. Jesus concludes with protection. Look at verse 4, and lead us not into temptation. This is how we know this is not the Lord's prayer. The Lord didn't need to be asked to be delivered or rescued from temptation or sin. We do. We need to pray, Lord, don't lead me into an area where I am weak. Guard me, protect me. In this context, it's quite likely that Jesus is referring to unbelief, to a lack of faith in general. Don't ever let me fall away from you, Jesus. It's to recognize that we can't fight sin alone. We cannot do it on our own. We need the power that Jesus provides. So here we have an amazing prayer. But here's what's astonishing. All of the pronouns are plural. So you've got you or y'all, as the Texans say. You've got we and us. All of these plural pronouns. What that means is disciples are supposed to pray together. It's not enough for me to be in my prayer closet or to be driving along 405 and to be praying by myself. That's wonderful. Don't stop doing that. But Jesus is saying, this needs to be done with other disciples. So who are you praying with? We've got corporate prayer gatherings on Sunday morning. We have a men's gathering from 7 to 8. We have both men and women meeting from 8 to 9. We have a prayer gathering on Wednesday night from 6 to 7. We call these power hours. There are opportunities for you in our community groups. You can find people to pray with. But maybe it's even more simple. Maybe it's every Sunday making a commitment to not leave our facility or our property without praying for one person. And we begin to ask each other, who did you pray for last Sunday? What's God been doing in that person's life or in your life through your commitment to pray? God wants us to beef up our prayer lives because he knows that's where the power falls. Now in verses 5 through 10, we have a parable and an application to that parable. And this parable is unique to Luke. That means it's not found in any of the other Gospels. And this is actually one of my favorite parables, even though it's a difficult one. Jesus says to the disciples, suppose, or better yet, which, which one of you? And if you take which, like the ESV and other English versions do, you really have verses 5, 6, and 7 bringing about a single question. So listen to this. Which one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut 
and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. This ought to be seen as one long question. And the answer is obvious. If a friend comes to another friend at any time, the friend should be willing to help. And this is especially important in the ancient Near East where hospitality was critical for the Jewish people. They would be hospitable to complete strangers, much less friends. And what you find is in verses 5 and 6, the term friend is emphasized three times. So Jesus is contrasting friend, a friend, a neighboring friend, with God the Father. Now, just to make sure we understand this parable, imagine you are in bed in Jesus' day when you weren't binging on Netflix at midnight. You were in bed. In fact, you've been in bed since sundown. Because once the light went out, you went to bed. So this neighbor, he's in full REM. His kids are in bed with him because they don't have a four or five bedroom house. They all share one room. Now, you know what it's like to get your kids to bed, especially if you have an infant or you have toddlers. Once you get them to bed, you say, don't breathe. We can finally enjoy our evening. We can have some time together. So if you wake up your family out of REM at midnight, that's an issue. That, that's a problem. And this neighbor is saying, I don't want to be bothered. And furthermore, put yourself in his sandals. I mean, he's thinking, it's not like my neighbor is saying, my mother has fallen over and she can't get up. Or my cow is having triplets. Or I ran out of toilet paper. I mean, he's not asking for that. He's just asking for some bread. Can the man who has come to visit make it until the morning hours? Perhaps. But again, that's when we get into our hospitality aspect. The point is, this man does not respond because he is friends with this man. Notice what Jesus says in verse 8. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, there the term is emphasized again, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, this man is not going to get out of bed and disturb his children and perhaps his wife. He's not going to get up and give this man three loaves of bread at midnight because they're friends and neighbors. No. He's only doing it because of a word translated persistence. Now, this Greek word only occurs here in the entire New Testament. And a better rendering than persistence is what the NIV has shameless audacity. Oh, that's beautiful. The ESV has impudence. I've never even used that word. I may not even be pronouncing that word correctly, but it's an accurate rendering. The idea is, it's not that this guy was necessarily knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking. The text doesn't say that. The text is emphasizing 
his boldness, his audacity, the shamelessness of going and waking up your neighbor. What's the point? God is not a grouchy neighbor. He's a generous father, as we will see. The use of friend is to point to the fact that friends disappoint us. Here, though, even the friend comes up big in the clutch because he's annoyed. He's annoyed. The request is shameless. It's audacious, and the friend responds. God is a generous father. He is a gracious father. He is the one who is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's who God is. Now, how do we know what we should do in response to this parable. Verses 9 and 10 is the application. Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus says, so, in light of what I said in this parable, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, many will understand this by emphasizing the present tense and say, okay, in order to get God's attention, we have to ask, seek, knock. We have to do it again and again and again. We have to become a nuisance to God. We have to bother Him. We have to shame ourselves audaciously and boldly. That's really not what's being said in Luke chapter 11. At the end of the summer, we'll go through Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, the unjust judge and the widow. That's a parable about persistent prayer. This passage is a parable about shameless, audacious, and bold prayer. It's whatever request you have, bringing it to the Father with absolute confidence because He wants to respond. He's not like that grouchy friend. He's a generous Father. He is a friend like no other. Now, verse 10 is even more encouraging. Jesus says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. There's a key word in this verse. It's the word everyone. Circle that word everyone. Just circle it. Put an asterisk next to it. We often assume that God answers prayers for those in our body who are Christian commandos, prayer warriors, and people who are average like myself or perhaps you, we don't get our prayers answered. Jesus proves that myth wrong. He says everyone. Did you know that there are no unanswered prayers? I mean, I like country music. And I remember Garth Brooks singing a song that I still like to this day. I thank God for unanswered prayers. But Garth was wrong. Every prayer that we pray is answered. The reason that we think our prayers aren't answered is sometimes the answer is wait or no. And sometimes we can't even make heads or tails of what the answer is. But that's where we have the opportunity to press into God and to ask for His wisdom and discernment. God wants to answer your prayers. Not only does God want to answer your prayers, He will answer all of your prayers. And it's up to us to determine what that answer is. 
Verses 11 through 13 introduce a new parable, a second parable, but this one is found in Matthew chapter 7, although there's some different aspects to it that we won't get into, but you can study Matthew 7 on your own. Notice what Jesus says as he begins. Now suppose, or which, or what one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? This sounds like a horror flick. I mean, can you imagine a father saying, you've asked for a fish, here's a snake. And the little boy says, thank you, daddy. He takes a snake and the snake is like... Or the father says, would you prefer a scorpion? Is there a father that would do that? Fathers typically love their children. They love to give good gifts to their children. It doesn't matter whether we're Christians or non-Christians. Most fathers love their children. challenge for you and me is many times we think we're asking for a fish or an egg and what we're really asking for is a snake or a scorpion we're saying lord i really want to marry this man or woman i need this job god i need you to come through Will you please make sure I'm admitted to this particular college? And could I have a scholarship with my admittance? God, I need you to come through by allowing me to be prosperous and to have my financial needs settled before retirement. And we're praying for what we think are fish and eggs. And for us, for whatever reason, they are snakes and scorpions. And so God says no. The best answers to prayer are the ones God decides to give to you. He knows what's best for you. He knows what's best for me. Just know He loves you. He's your Father. He cares for you. And that's what verse 13 drives home. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Put an asterisk next to that. How much more? Will your heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? He will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. I'm thinking to myself, God, you're calling me evil? I resent that, God. God's looking down upon me. He's saying, you represent that. I mean, that's who you are. God's saying, in comparison with Him, we are evil and wicked. Now, please, again, don't misunderstand me. We have a new nature. We're new creations in Christ. But because of our motives, our attitudes, our thoughts, our words, our deeds, we sin on a daily basis. And when we compare ourselves with the standard of Christ, we know we're evil compared to Christ. And yet, at no time do we do better at expressing love and goodness than when we care for our children. And yet, Luke and Jesus are saying, 
Even on your best day, even on your best moment of generosity, trustworthiness, and goodness, you're evil. You're diabolical in that moment compared to what the Father wants to do for you as His child. God's greatest gift is stated in this verse. It is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would come in Acts chapter 2. This is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke that Dr. Luke wrote. Acts 2 talks about the Holy Spirit coming to permanently indwell believers, but the reality is that's not the focal point here. It's on the day-to-day need to be filled with the Spirit of God. If you want to know more about that, Pastor Steve Allen did a phenomenal message on Ephesians 5, 15 through 21 on April 25th. Go back to that sermon and learn what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. What I can tell you is the empowering work of the Holy Spirit affects every area of your life, marriage, family, singleness, retirement, vocation, ministry, you name it. And God wants to give you that good gift because he's a good father. So what does Jesus want us to understand? This one truth. Pray to God the Father who cares for you. We are to pray to our Father in heaven because he's generous, he's gracious, he knows what's best for us, and he wants us to bring all of our cares, all of our concerns, all of our needs to him. And he is yearning to answer our prayers. He will give the Holy Spirit, and as Matthew 7 says, every other good gift, he will give it to disciples if they simply ask him for it. Pray to God the Father who truly cares for you. Do you believe that today? I confessed at the beginning of this sermon that I struggle believing that God the Father always cares for me and loves me and wants what's best for me, particularly when I disappoint Him and when I grieve Him with my sin. But I know how much I love my kids. No matter what they do to me, no matter how they treat me, no matter how they rebel, I love them unconditionally. And yet I'm a sinful man. I'm a selfish man. I'm a prideful man. And yet I love my kids with all this within me. How much more does God the Father love you? How much more does God the Father want to be a father to you, love you unconditionally, and use you in a powerful way? Pray to God the Father who truly cares for you. Let's pray together. God, we come before you right now as Father. You are our eternal heavenly Father. You love us. You have provided for us. You protect us on a daily basis. Thank you for everything that you've done for us. But Lord, more importantly, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your person and your program and what you want to do in our lives and in your global church. Help us, Lord, to humble ourselves before you and acknowledge our need to grow in prayer. Would you allow Crossroads Bible Church to become passionate in prayer? 
Would you allow us to spend more time praying together? And would you make us the people you want us to be? Father, I can't conclude without simply offering the Holy Spirit to those that would ask. The greatest gift we can be given is Jesus Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. And the moment we believe in Jesus, acknowledging our sin to Him, He gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit that allows us to live a heavenly life in a hellish world. If you have never believed in Christ, believe in Him alone today. Ask Him to be your Savior and then begin talking to Him. That's all that prayer is, talking to our Heavenly Father. Thank you, Lord, for building disciples who bring Jesus to our world. Help us to be faithful to you, Lord, in your great name. Amen.